this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, please contact Nexus Church. The beauty and the power of the cross. Uh, Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. If you're happy to be in church, why don't you smile at me? So good to see your squinting eyes at me. It's the only way you can tell is if you have a little squint in your eye. But hey, you know what? I'm just super grateful to be meeting today. So I'm not going to whinge too much. If you're joining us online, thank you for streaming. I know many are staying at home for all kind of health reasons. We appreciate that. Thanks for not breathing on us, but glad you're joining us online. Glad you're here in the building with us. The images you just saw, uh, a lot of them were taken from that uh, series, The Chosen. I would encourage you across the Easter weekend, if you haven't already, to watch that series. Uh, I can tell you every episode I cry in. Um, some people think I'm a pushover. I cry now in the Lion King and Narnia now, but don't worry about that. Uh, but I would encourage you to watch that. What we're talking about today is the beauty and the power of the cross. Andy did a brilliant job of leading us in communion. And I just have a few thoughts to share and then we'll go about our day. But I want us to stop and reflect on the beauty and the power of the cross. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He says in Hebrews 12, encouraging people and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy Set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The only time you sit down is when your work is completed. And we know this. Jesus is sitting down on that heavenly throne right now because the work is done. Every man knows this. When you mow the lawn and trim the hedges, you sit down and you tell everyone in your house to admire your work. Jesus is sitting down. And saying the work is finished and completed. Now you and I walk in the freedom of that. But I want to pick up on that one phrase there. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. The story of the Christian faith takes place in three different gardens. To understand the three gardens of the Christian faith means that you will fully understand what it means to be a Christ follower. The first garden is the Garden of Eden. I'm sure you're familiar with that with the fall of humanity. And we stepped towards sin and away from God and there was a gap or a chasm between us and our relationship with God, the first garden, the Garden of Eden. The second garden is the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, the place of pressure, the decision that is made that Jesus keeps on making to press on. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus for the first time in all of his life has a prayer turned down. If you ever wonder what it's like to have a prayer turned down, Jesus knows what it's like. He asked the Father for the cup to pass from him, that this hour may go from him. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. In the second garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, Jesus makes a decision for the joy set before him to keep moving forward. I'm so glad he did. The final garden is the garden tomb of Golgotha. The third garden, and I would say the most important garden, I know it's Good Friday, but I've got to tell you, Sunday's coming. And it's the garden tomb of Golgotha where Jesus rises in resurrection power, highlighting everything about who he is, everything he said. And because of the resurrection at that garden tomb of Golgotha, everything changes. But I want to take a moment this morning and look at what happens between Gethsemane and Golgotha because that is what changes everything about who we are and everything about our lives. When we understand these three gardens, 
We understand the pressure that Jesus faced in Gethsemane and that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. For the joy set before Him. Jesus would remind us time and again why He came. He didn't come for the good people or for the righteous. He came to seek and to save the lost. He would say this in Luke chapter 19 about a man called Zacchaeus. But I want to go back a little bit in time, if I may. You see, before Golgotha, that final garden and the resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Sunday, it's going to be an amazing day. Before even that moment in Gethsemane where he chooses to pressure on, to press on, there was a moment before the Last Supper, there was a moment that is often missed, but something significant happened. We're going to read in a moment a story of a woman who anoints Jesus with perfume and it so impacted Jesus that he says something about this unnamed woman that he doesn't say about anybody else in all of his interactions. He says this, everywhere the gospel is preached, you'll hear her story. Phenomenal. Jesus doesn't say that about any other human being that he interacts with. Only this woman, this unnamed woman in in Mark 14 and Matthew 26. Luke 7, there's a different account. John 12 may assume that it's Mary of Bethany, but Matthew and Mark both say this woman is unnamed. And Jesus says, everywhere I am preached, you're going to hear her story. We would do well to pay attention to it because she anoints him with this perfume moments before he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, moments before he is betrayed, a matter of hours before the trial, maybe even less than two days before he hangs on that rugged old cross. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have one, just trust me that it's in there. Mark chapter 14 and verse 1, we're going to read this story. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Scholars give us all different kinds of timelines of events, but uh, the scholars that I have read are saying we assume this would be Wednesday. Wednesday, this moment happens. Thursday, he has the Last Supper. Uh, Thursday night, he is arrested. Friday, he's hanging on a tree. Perhaps this is two days before he's hanging on a tree. This is the last few moments of his freedom. Only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly, And kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. If we were to borrow from John's account in John chapter 12, he says this the entire house was filled with the fragrance. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me with you. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Jesus knew the kind of death he was about to die. He would die a death of a common criminal. I'm sure you'd be aware, but if you died on a Roman cross, you were not entitled to any burial rites whatsoever. In fact, the design of it was that you'd be standing, you'd be 
hung there on the Roman road as a testimony that, hey, you mess with Rome, this is what you get. For the most part, bodies were never taken down. They were just picked off by wild animals. And yet Jesus is saying, my body is being embalmed for my burial. Truly, I tell you, watch this. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray together. Jesus, we look to you this morning. Because of all you've done, we stand here today in freedom. Because of your blood poured out, we are washed clean. Because of all that you did, we stand now righteous and whole before our loving Father. And Jesus, we say thank you. Help us to catch this moment that you went through so that we can not only honour you, but be impacted by all you've done in us. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. What you notice in the story is that it takes place in a town called Bethany. Jesus had been to Bethany before in John 11. He'd raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus, the the brother of Mary and Martha. He's familiar with the town of Bethany, but it was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, less than two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is an outside town. It's not in the heart of Jerusalem. It's where people would gather and congregate to head into Jerusalem. But the point of this, Bethany was on the outskirts of town. The second observation is that it was at the house of Simon the leper. At this point, we are assuming that Simon is no longer a leper, or that would have made a very interesting dinner party. You're worried about a face mask and a bit of COVID. I would not want dinner served by a leper. What is this you've placed in my meal? Not the worst kind of, uh, not the best kind of interaction if Simon was still a leper. I'm guessing you're smiling and laughing. Don't worry, that's just beef stroganoff. The point of the story of Simon the leper is the fact that Simon was no longer a leper because Jesus had healed him. So the story takes place at Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now at Simon the leper's house. He was still called Simon the leper, but we know he was no longer a leper because Jesus healed him. And the final thing you need to understand about this story is this was a man's only dinner party. And yet this woman interrupts the feast. She breaks through the cultural conditions of the day and she pushes past the crowd and she interrupts the whole feast. Mark wants you to see something takes place on the outskirts of town in the house of an outsider, Simon the leper. And a woman from the outside finds her way on the inside. Who did Jesus come to save? The people on the outskirts of town, the people who are still leprous needing healing and the people who were on the outside he brings in. If you're ever wondering who Jesus came to save, it is people like you and me who have no right by who we think we are, but we have a right because we were outsiders brought to the inside. Jesus on the outskirts of town in the house of an outsider is interrupted by an outsider. The lady pours a perfume known as spikenard. In the New Testament, spikenard is the most expensive perfume mentioned in the entire New Testament. There is no more expensive perfume. Very often we can assume that this is merely an oil, but it's not an oil. It says clearly in the text, it's a perfume. It comes from a plant in India that is extracted 
and imported all the way from India to Jerusalem. It was well worth more than a year's wages and it was a phenomenal fragrance known in the ancient world. Spike nard. We may assume that it was an oil, but the fact of the matter is, is that it was a perfume. That is why the entire house was filled with this incredible fragrance. When we think it's just oil, we might think that Jesus was only the Messiah, but he is the Messiah, or only anointed as king. But more than that, what's happening in this moment is not only is he Messiah, not only is he king, he is also our perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And she breaks this spikenard alabaster jar. It wasn't the kind of thing that you could unscrew and use sparingly. The neck of it had to be broken and completely poured out. Let me tell you, this woman extravagantly knew who Jesus was and wasn't going to hold back anything from him. Can I tell you today, that's how you approach the cross of Jesus Christ, is not by merely unscrewing the top of your life and saying, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit, I'll give you a few drops. What we have to do in our faith is we have to break the neck off it and actually pour all of ourselves out. That's what Jesus requires, just like this woman. She pours this perfume out. And Jesus, as this is happening, he knows what's happening. He knows what's about to transpire. It was custom of the day to place a little oil on the head of people who arrived as your house guests. But this is perfume filling the entire room, covering his entire body. One of the greatest fragrances known in the ancient world. And Jesus says this line, what she has done will be remembered. Every time you preach about me, make sure you remember this woman. One commentator would say this, that whether she knew it or not, this woman was encouraging him at the outset of the final phase of his mission. Come with me down these creative lines for a moment and then we'll, we'll finish. Jesus is covered with this perfume. I'm sure you'd be familiar with the fact that ancient Israelites did not bath or shower every day. Doesn't take much Googling to figure that out. Every time they had a meal, they certainly washed their hands. That was custom of the day. But very rarely would an ancient Israelite person have a regular bath or a shower or anything even equivalent. We understand this. Only the very rich would have ritual baths set up in their households, but the common person would rarely bath or shower. It was just how things worked. They washed their feet, they washed their hands, but very rarely their entire bodies. Come with me down this creative path for one moment. On Wednesday night, Jesus is anointed with the most expensive perfume in the ancient world, covering his entire body. And at that moment, he's inhaling this incredible fragrance that is soaked into his skin, perhaps even all over his garment. You and I understand the power of our sense of smell. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it's one of the most amazing things God has designed in our whole bodies. In fact, your sense of smell has a direct input into your brain and directly into your memory centers. Visual and audio sensors, uh, they actually are indirect. You have to process that and then you remember something. But your sense of smell is different to anything else. The moment you smell something, you are instantly reminded of certain things that have taken place in your life. Scientists would call this olfactory evoked recall. Welcome to church. Olfactory revoked recall. 
What this means is when I smell freshly cut green grass, I instantly think of under-eight soccer. I remember the time when we couldn't play one game because we were away and we lost one nil, and I remember that when I smell fresh green grass. When I smell mothballs, I think of my grandpa and going over there to mow the lawn when he would chase me down with ice creams and Tim Tams every five pushes of that lawnmower. When I smell Lynx Africa, I think of grade eight coming in from big lunch and just all of us with our bags. Every time I smell Lynx Africa, I think of being in grade eight. When I smell Miss Dior, Cherie, I think of my bride walking down the aisle, fragrance that I can very rarely afford myself. I'm sure you'd be familiar with this. I'm sure if I was to ask you certain smells, or maybe perhaps you spend the rest of the afternoon smelling things, instantly there is a memory that is triggered and God has hardwired our brains that way. That's just how it works. Come with me on this idea. This so encouraged Jesus, this moment, I wonder if there was some interesting things taking place. Jesus is in the house of Bethany, the last moments of his freedom. This perfume is being poured out all over him, but the room is full of the people that he has impacted. He looks over at Peter, who was the reed and now becoming the rock. He looks at James and John and he sees these fishermen who were going nowhere with their lives, having purpose. He sees Nathaniel and he's reminded of calling Nathaniel. He sees Matthew, the tax collector, who was profiteering. Now he's one of his disciples. He looks out and Lazarus is there because it's in Bethany. He's reminded of him being raised from the dead, but he's reminded of the other people that he raised from the dead, including the widow's son at Nain. He sees others surrounding the room, those he had healed and he had loved. And perhaps even in that moment, all of these memories are beginning to lock in as he's smelling this fragrance and he's reminded of this room full of outcasts and outsiders and even this woman. And maybe he's reminded of every woman that he had helped, the woman caught in adultery, the woman who he set free from her infirmity. And as Jesus is inhaling this fragrance, he is reminded of this moment and this room full of all of the people and I just have this thought that perhaps he's inhaling this incredible spike nard at the moment he's inhaling it at the very same time all of these faces like we saw on the screen are locking into his memory locking into his mind the last moment of his freedom and so from that moment they have the last supper they share their last meal and they go to the garden and Jesus is pleading with the father He says, Father, if it's possible, let the cup pass from me. And Jesus doesn't get a reply from heaven. Jesus has a prayer turned down. And I could only imagine, and perhaps this is my creative thought this morning, but I imagine that moment when perhaps Jesus was wanting to give up, and yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I wonder if in the garden when he's sweating blood at the point of agony, already feeling lost and abandoned, he breathes deeply. He's reminded of the people that he came to save. And so he presses on. As the garden, he moves past the garden and then he's arrested. Judas betrays him with a kiss and they arrest him. They haul him before the chief priests of the day, the the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, 
They put him through already a mock trial. And in that moment, he's beginning to see the doors close in on his freedom. And I wonder if Jesus thinks, well, now would be the time for me to be able to break out of this and move on. And yet in that moment, he stops and he breathes again and he smells that spikenard, that fragrance that is on his skin. And instantly, he's reminded of the people, reminded of the faces for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and he presses on. He's beaten by those officials at that time. He's hauled before Pilate. And even in that moment when he's hauled before Pilate, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't take a moment and plead his case. He doesn't actually ask for a higher authority. He remains silent. The Bible says, as a lamb to the slaughter, remains silent. And in that moment, again, when he sees the doors of freedom shutting, when he knows what's about to happen, he chooses to remain silent and take the punishment. And Jesus breathes in and he's reminded of all the people. He's reminded of the faces that he came to save because of the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He moves straight from that moment. He's arrested. He's condemned. Condemned to a cruel death. He's flogged. He's beaten. They put a purple robe on him. They twist a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him with a staff. They mock him and say, all hail King Jesus. And the point, the moment when perhaps Jesus thought, maybe right now it's gone too far. Maybe I need to give up. Maybe it's time to call in heaven's armies and we just need to find another way. And yet in that moment when he's being beaten and mocked, I just wonder if he breathed deep again. Smell just the lingering fragrance of that spikenard perfume and instantly the faces popped up. The people that he, that he knew he came to save and set free, the people that filled the room, then the people that filled the room now for the joy set before him, he presses on. He's forced to carry a horrible cross to the point of his execution up Golgotha Hill He's so wearied by this stage that he begins to lagger behind as someone else has to come to support him. He's hung on that cross through the most inhumane, torturous method the world had ever invented. In fact, it got outlawed only a few years after these moments because it was just far too cruel for the Romans to do this. In fact, no Roman citizen was allowed to be hung on a cross without the emperor himself signing off on it. It was far too cruel. And as they drive the stakes in, and as he thought about even giving up and this would be the moment where everything would shift and maybe he'd call down the armies of heaven once again and this would be the moment where his freedom, where he could show once and for all his power and yet he's hanging on that cross and he breathes, breathes again. Catches that fragrance and the faces of the people that he came to save. The outsiders to seek and to save the lost. Your face is my face. And he pressed on. So whatever happened in that moment when that woman anointed him, Jesus was powerfully reminded of the people that he came to save. In Luke 19, when it was Zacchaeus, he says, this man too is a son of Abraham, and I have come to seek and to save the lost. All throughout the New Testament, we are reminded of the people that Jesus came to reach, the people on the outside, the people who were broken and hurting, the people who had no invitation to the feast, and Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Team, you can come and join me. 
I want us to just take a moment this morning as we're reminded of all that Jesus did, but I want us to be reminded why he did it. It's one thing to only focus on the brutality of the crucifixion, and though that is true, but I want to remind us of why. I want to start way back at the very beginning. It was the Garden of Eden that humanity fell. We chose to turn away. We chose to follow a different God in one sense and de God a God and became our own gods. We made him in our own image. But then in Golgotha, well then in Gethsemane, sorry, Jesus made a decision to not find another alternative but to press on. Jesus so encouraged by these faces and names and the people that he came to reach that he makes decision after decision after decision to press on for the joy set before him. And on Sunday when he rises from the Golgotha tomb, the garden tomb, in resurrection power, it's the ultimate validation of God saying, this is my son who came to seek and to save the lost. And so you and I today do not stand condemned. You and I stand whole, set free and healed. Isaiah 53 sums it up better than uh, any other Old Testament writer. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter, picking up on this theme, would write about it. The one who witnessed all of Jesus' life, the one who disowned him, the one who stepped away and yet was fully restored. The New Testament version of Isaiah 53, I think, is very simply put in 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy was not a thing or an object. The joy set before him was people. The faces, the names, the stories, the outcasts. Let me pray for us this morning. And so, Jesus, we stop and we remember. We stop and with hearts full of gratitude, we say thank you. We thank you that it was the joy that was set before you. You endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now you're seated at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, Jesus, today, we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. This morning in the Father's presence, as we've been worshipping, we find grace and we receive mercy in our time of need. Because the joy set before you, Jesus. You endured the cross for our sake. Jesus, you saw our faces, you saw our stories. You would know our brokenness, our hurt. You would know that at the end of the day, we are all on the outside. We say thank you, Jesus, 
that you pressed on, that you pressed on through every moment, through every decision for the joy set before you. And so we stand today in freedom. We, we're amazed at the presence of a loving Father touching every heart this morning. And we stop and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the joy set before you that you endured, that today we walk in freedom. That every moment of your journey to that cross, you saw faces, you saw people, you saw us. And we so mattered to you, Jesus. You gave it all. And we honor you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.